Dharma is, is truly real. That's a kind of ignorance. So it's not just about the self, but of course the main target is precisely the self. Right? That's the main target. So that's because our, our, our most basic intuition is that somehow the self is kind of made out of the aggregate. So that's really going to turn out to be the main target. Okay? Uh, so if we see things the way things really are, we see that all, the, all there is is a bunch of mental and physical, irreducible, momentary stuff called dharmas. Right? Different kinds of stuff. Right? And if we add this Autrantika on... We would even say even the idea that there's kinds of stuff is a problem, like class categories, uh, um, classes of things. The madhyamakas who can call be called shunita vadans. So that means vadan is someone who holds a vada, is it like a philosophy? Shunita is this word that means emptiness. So these are the f- ex- proponents of emptiness, shunita vadan. So for them, ignorance is the belief that there's anything whatsoever that exists truly or ultimately. Anything at all. There is no such thing as something that exists ultimately. I.e., that exists by virtue of its own being, swabhava, which we can translate as essence, or even intrinsic nature. So things don't have, and we're going to explore more of what that means, but... If, we, if what we mean by ultimate existence is things existing essentially in and of themselves by virtue of their intrinsic nature or their own being, then there is no such thing as something that exists that way. Okay? That means that thing, no thing is fixed in its identity and therefore everything is infinitely malleable and therefore samsara can be transformed into nirvana. So all of this, remember these... Like suddenly the Buddha's back in iconic form. They're telling stories like the Vimalakirti Sutra, you know, about the world being turned into heaven. Uh, merchants, and we spoke, I forgot your name. Elizabeth. Liz, and I, Elizabeth and I spoke a little bit how merchants have always probably been important in Buddhism, but at this period when mercantilism is even, you know, really ramping up significantly. Uh, merchants seem to have become even more important for the Buddhist community. So lay practitioners are happening. And if it's lay practice, the image of lay practice is not kind of leaving society, but transforming society. Right? So all of these things are kind of happening roughly at the same time historically. And we can't say which is the cause and which is the effect. I mean, maybe, you know, people just started, and also people started to do more and more sort of worship of the Buddha, puja. So uh, maybe people started doing that and then you know, people like Nagarjuna kind of caught up with it and said, well, let me justify this philosophically. Or maybe this was a, a hidden philosophical tradition as, as they would claim and then finally like, okay, it's time. People are starting to act this way. Let's go ahead and you know, make it explicit. Who knows? But, but it's clear that all this stuff kind of fits together. The Buddha's back. Nirvana isn't. He's not gone. Nirvana doesn't mean the throne is empty. Uh, the uh, you know uh, it's not. We don't have to escape samsara. We don't have to leave ordinary life into the monastery. This is the locus of nirvana. 
celestial stories of you know transformation and so on. So all that stuff is happening together. Who knows chicken and egg like how? But that's the idea here. So this philosophy works with that other stuff. The Buddha coming back, Nirvana being the same locus as samsara, the idea of radical transformation, more emphasis on lay practice. That can be overstated, but, I, it's, a, but it's certainly clear that there is more emphasis on it. Uh, and you know, probably the role of the merchant class. Okay? So what does it mean, therefore, to see the nature of ultimate reality? Instead of just seeing dharmas, irreducible dharmas, as selfless, impermanent, and of the nature of suffering, the three marks, now what it means to see ultimate reality is to see that all things, all dharmas, persons and things, are all empty of essence. Okay, so... For that reason, like Mahayana traditions actually don't even talk about the three marks that often. It's, it's the three characteristics. The three characteristics, yeah. Could the three luxuries. Could he have used the Pali Abhidhamma? Could he have used the same So, thing? no, I mean, that's a good question, and I don't know the Pali Abhidhamma well enough, but what, what I know from my colleagues who've worked on it, and what I've read about it from those colleagues and speaking to people, including uh, Bhante Analio, my impression is that this Abhidharma was much easier to do it with because, as we're going to see, there is a kind of essentialism in this Abhidharma that's very clear and that is not as obvious in the other Abhidharmas. But could there be people who were in the Apali Abhidharma who were, even though it wasn't written down, were being equally essentialist? Probably, yes. Well, I think, the th- is, I think there's a way to be an Abhidharmaka in general that gets caught in a certain kind of essentialism. Which is to say, one way to think about that is that the model is reality. Like, not, the model is not a map of reality, it is reality. Right, I mean, the only thing I can say, I'm not a Buddhist scholar, but I never heard about this irreducible elements. Obviously, emptiness is in the Theravada Buddhism. It has a different meaning, yeah, in Theravada, yeah. Well, a little bit, maybe. Sure. No, I, I promise you, you'll see. It has a different meaning. Well, Once, it, isn't it simple? I, mean, I don't think so. Emptiness, no self, isn't it? No, it's emptiness. Well, the classical meaning is, uh, the sort of standard meaning is, and there's selflessness and emptiness. The fork, you know, in terms of the characteristics of the truth of suffering, one of them is selflessness. One of them is emptiness. But emptiness there means there's no, selflessness means anatma, and, and emptiness is anatma, ana, anatmiya. There's no I and there's no nothing owned by me. What's the difference between anatta and emptiness? Anatta just means that there is no capitalist self right. in the aggregates. Emptiness is that there's no such thing as aggregates. Aggregates don't exist, ultimately. So that's a Mahayana idea. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So when you, when you see the emptiness, and we'll explain what that means soon. Okay? doesn't mean that there's nothing... <coughs> Very important. doesn't mean that there's nothing. So, you know, everyone wants to end suffering, uh, but the Majamakas are going to emphasize altruism, you could say, the Bodhisattva aspect of this, which is it's not just your suffering, it's everybody's suffering. That's the goal. Uh, How do you eliminate suffering? You eliminate its cause, which is ignorance. Ignorance is basically 
an error in seeing, you don't see the way the world really is, so wisdom is what eliminates ignorance. Because wisdom sees the way the world really is. Or sees what is really the case. Because as it turns out, saying the world, the way the world really is implies that there is a world. A real ultimate world. Which is what's going to be called into question. Okay? So this is where the Sanskrit Abhidharma, specifically the Vaibhashika, the verses of the Abhidharma Kosha by Vasubandhu, uh, uh, this is where they are especially uh, a good target because they're the ones who do this most essentializing. Okay? So again, we know what they're saying is that we go through a reductive analysis and in the end we find that the things that are ultimately real are also substantially real, dravyasat, which is a synonym of ultimately real, that they are irreducible, uh, uh, irreducible things. You can't reduce them further. So, yeah? Uh, not really, because these are like discrete, you know, discrete. physical entities, and strings are not really discrete physical entities in the same way. Uh, so these elements, once you get to the irreducible part, you have dharmas, okay? And dharmas are ultimately real, right? And so this is something that most of the abhidharma. Most of the Abhidharmas will, in one way or another, imply or explicitly endorse. So that's where you could probably slide into essentialism, even if you're not a Sautrant, even if you're not a Vaibhashika. Okay? But the Vaibhashika do this explicitly. So, why? What's their definition? These elements, or you can call them primary existence, that's a term that Paul Williams uses, exist in and of themselves. They exist objectively, regardless of how they are being observed, from their own side, with their own intrinsic nature, with their own swabhava. And even in the Abhidharma Kosha, you get, actually in the commentary, you'll get a, like a, a sort of etymology of the word dharma. It's not really an etymology, but it's a fanciful etymology. Swa swabhavam dharati iti dharmaha. So it's playing on the verb dr, which means to hold. And, that, and so the, the word dharma sounds like it has that verb also in it. Probably doesn't, but it sounds like it. Dharma. So dharati holds. That which holds its own essence is a dharma. That which has its own essence is a dharma. So that's what it means to be ultimately real. So the world, so persons don't, you know, there is no capital S self in here which is like made out of these things. There's no single thing that is the self here. But there's a bunch of real things. Psychophysical elements. And they really exist. There must have been a philosoph- within their philosophical structure, there must have been a reason why they wanted some level of actuality, except, you know, something that exists in the bottom there. Was it basically to refute a point of view that might be that everything is mind-made? Or there must have been a reason yeah, I think that's a really good question. And probably, I think part of the reason is that they just want to be able to make definitive statements about, if you're going to say there is no self, you can just say, well, what is there? And how do I, what am I supposed to do then? How do I, you know, what's the process here? How do I manipulate things? How do I get to nirvana? Yeah, you might, yeah, you might think that. You might go in that direction. 
you might, but also there is like, you know, a, an urge toward a kind of scholastic precision. We want the whole path laid out. We want all the stages of the path laid out. We want the whole cosmology laid out. And we want... And I think the reason is that this is, we want the truth. That's the reason. We want to know what is really true. And, and actually that term is used in the portion of the Abhidharma Kosha, which talks about this, the ultimate truth, the paramartha satya, that word means truth. It can also translate as reality, but it's also, it's the word truth, and a conventional truth. So it's like, no, we're not satisfied just with what people say conventionally. We want to know what's really true. Because isn't that what's going to free you, is knowing what the truth is. Right? So this is their way of getting to what is the truth. Like, it's true that there are dharmas. They're real. Can John, can you say what these elements, an example of these elements of dharmas? Like what? Vedana. It's one of them. All, you know. So in the five aggregates, rupa, there are many different kinds of rupa, of course. A form, you know, a sanya is a single, single dharma. A discrimination is a single dharma. Vedana is, is, is a single dharma with different you know, f- types, but it's a single dharma. Uh, um, samskaras are multiple kinds of thing. You know, all of the kleshas are under that category. It just means conditioning, samskara, right? So you have a whole, uh, that's a sort of large category in the five skandhas, the fourth one. That includes a whole bunch of dharmas. And then consciousness, there are different kinds of, six kinds of consciousness. And they're all, you know, each each instance of consciousness is a is a dharma. So yeah. Are these developments? They seem to be philosophically driven more than spiritually driven. I don't know that that's true. I'm not so I'm not so sure that's true. So let's say you do a serious. So let's take. Let's say you understand that the way you're going to become free of the belief in an absolute self the kind of self that we've been talking about, controller, owner, etc., is you're going to look for it. You're going to look at each of the... So in order to look for it, you have to know what to look at. If you don't have an exhaustive list of what constitutes your mind-body system, you might miss something. So they're trying to arrive at a, a method? They're trying to arrive at a definitive meditation method. Right? Or this emerges out of the urge for that. Like, I want to know exactly where to look. So I don't leave any stone unturned. It's like, you know, I'm looking in the, mon- in the closet for the blue monster and I haven't mapped the right corner. So tomorrow I feel like, oh, he must have been in the right corner. Right? And on top of it then, I need to use reason to show that a thing, because it looks like, oh, there's a one thing, that's the closet. There's one thing, that's this. I have to show that that's not, doesn't make sense. So, yeah. Uh, Vedana is, uh, some people say sensation. What, what's feeling, feeling, feeling tone, tone feeling, tone. feeling tone? Hedonic feeling tone. Yeah, feeling tone. It's not like atoms or molecules. Yes, also. Also that. Those are, so there are mental and physical dharmas. Irreducible mental dharmas, irreducible bits of mind, so to speak. In the Buddhist tradition, they say that in intense levels of meditation, you can see. Yes, yes, that's correct. If you get, that's right. In 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 
I think probably all of the in Indian, South Asian traditions, you can get to the point where you can see individual dharmas. Yeah. But most people, most ordinary people can't, and that's probably not necessary to, to do this kind of practice. Yes. Yes, exactly. It's the fundamental building blocks, the fundamental mental and physical building blocks of everything. Okay? Now, whether, that, whether the Sarvasivada really intended that to be... So one of the things that's about this is, is it really an exhaustive list? Or is it just a list that, of what you need to look at in order to be sure about selflessness? So the Sarvasivada, or the Vaibhashika... The essentialist Abhidharmikas seem to move in this direction of like, it's not just a, a list out of like, this is what you need to look at it in order to be sure. You don't have to map everything in the closet. You just have to map the things that could be a place where the blue monster is. But they move toward like, we're mapping everything. This is the final map. Right? So that's part of that essentialism. So it grows out of a kind of practice. So I don't think it's just philosophical speculation, but then what happened, maybe what your point I, would, I think is that it sort of takes that, what's something that's trying to be helping, helpful with, with practice, and it's sort of adding this whole like very um, analytical, not just analytical, systematizing style on top of it, what we call scholasticism. And like we want to make everything neat and tidy, it all got to work out perfectly, you know, sort of Talmudic, you know, like everything's going to be exactly this way. And, and so you end up with sometimes very complicated things, but also things that now don't really seem to have any relationship to practice. But I think this idea does, because what this is pointing to is something that is not just an Abhidharmika thing, which is, do I look real to you? Yes. You feel like I, you're in a dream? No. no. Right? I'm real? Okay. I rest my case. What do you mean that I'm real? What does that mean? Like I exist. Well, how? What would, be, what would be the opposite? Yeah, you see me. You can see me in a dream. What's the difference between seeing... What's the difference between the, the dream John done and this one? Okay. Anything else? Let's say you're in a lucid dream. I'll be in your dreams tonight and we'll see what happens. No. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's a scary idea. Uh, look out, everybody. Uh, 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 Oh yeah, you're in the, you, yeah, right, exactly. So, in a, especially in a lucid dream, but I think even in, an, in, a, in a dream where you're not lucid, when you wake up, you go, oh, that seems so real. Yeah. But you kind of like, it, you know it wasn't. There's a sense of, and especially in a lucid dream, you already know it's not real. So there's a phenomenology of unreal, like watching a movie, you could be totally absorbed in a ruling and say, oh, that seems so real. But what you're saying is, it seemed real, but at the same time, part of you knew it wasn't. That's true. That's, but then you still wake up. You do end up 
and and then in the moment it feels very real, but then you do wake up, and there is like the recollection of it is a recollection of something that feels unreal when you wake up. Whereas when you recollect me in five minutes, I'm assuming that it's not going to feel unreal. So only time tells whether it's. Yeah. So. Yeah. We know you're impermanent, so now you're not... Speak for yourself. No, I'm going to say... I am. So, so you know... Are you so, not ultimately real because we saw you over time? Well, no. So, no you, so there could be a phenomenology where, of course, it's from a long time ago, whatever. What I'm talking about is current experience or something you just experienced, like a fresh... You just saw something or you just woke up, right? So there's a phenomenology, a feeling of being real. Okay? Like, that's real. That exists just the way I see it. So, psychotic states would also. Yes, correct. Could dissociative, yeah. uh, dissociate, dissociation, derealization. And frankly, this style of philosophy is deliberately trying to induce something that looks like that. So that when you get really good at it, you, you feel like you're in a dream. Yeah. So. So, and that's because the claim is that the sense that, oh, this is just the way things are, is blocking us. I'm just this way, the world is just this way. And that sense of, like, this is real, period. And I have nothing to do with making it real. It's not the way I'm seeing it, it's not the way I'm conceptualizing it. it has, I'm, it's just like the way it is. Right? So that sense, like it's just real. What we're experiencing, that's what this is about. This is just a philosophical articulation of that phenomenology. So that's what Nagarjuna's final, certainly, I think Nagarjuna and definitely later Majambakas, that's what they're, they kind of forget about the Abhidharmakas. Like, who cares? It's now, it's really that, which you could call the reality habit. And instead of a self-habit, now we also have a reality habit. Right? So the earlier critique is targeting the self-habit, and this is targeting the reality habit. So it's an illusion that we see, that we believe that you're real. That would be an illusion. So yes, you could say the sense that I, what you're seeing, is just reality as it is from its own side objectively has nothing to do with your perspective it has nothing to do with how you conceptualize things it has nothing to do with your emotional states like this is just reality okay so one of the ways to see that kind of behaviorally is to think about it when you when someone's really angry and they're like totally convinced about something that is completely false. Right? You've probably seen, you've maybe been there yourself. I have. And maybe you've seen, been with people who've been there. And it's like, there's no question that this is, right? Completely like, and it's, not, and it's like someone says, you know, you know actually, you know, it's just because you're not understanding, you're not seeing it the right way. It's like, what do you mean I'm not seeing it the right way? You know? You know, and it's like, it's just reality. 
And of course, it's not reality at all. And then there's contagions who are called Yes, become, yes, and they inhabit. So the idea is so like a kind of conspiracy theory. Yeah. So you could kind of say we're all living in a conspiracy theory called reality. Right? Our shared reality. And, and really get, get deeper with that, not just, and really what I'm saying is that part of that reality is not just you know, what we're seeing, it's our culture. So that we are, I mean, culture literally gets under the skin, it's in your brain. So you know, we, at very young, acquire certain types of capacities, we learn certain types of things that get wired into the brain, and that's culture. And that's a good thing. Except it's a two-edged sword, because it also says, well, that's just the way the world is. And as you were pointing out, especially if you travel in other places, you know, I'm about to go back to Nepal. I mean, I remember the first time I went to India, which is pretty similar to Nepal, it's like, my God, I'm on another planet. I really felt like I was on another planet. Because it was so different. So entirely different. Like what? I don't know, everything. The way people interacted, you know... The way that, uh, uh, like this. What are you doing? What are you doing? Oh, the way he did it. Ask me where the post office is. is say, say, is the post office over there? Is the post office over there? <laughs> <laughs> what does that mean? What does it mean? It means many things, actually. <laughs> Mostly it means yes, but it probably means you're too stupid to find it. <laughs> It's over there, but good luck. <laughs> it could be also, it could be. What's that? It could be interpreted as, yeah, maybe. It could be. Yeah, yeah, it could be. Yeah, it could be like maybe, but it also can mean it is over there, but to get there, you have no clue and you're not going to make it. Yeah, it's sort of a yes, sort of. Yeah, yes, but, yes, but, yeah. Or in Tibetan, like, you know, Hanging out with the Tibetans, there's so many things about Tibetan culture. It's not even hard that just the way people move. Like you can always identify Americans abroad, almost always, by the way they move. Fast. And no, nah, it's yeah. Some of it is fast. I, when I first went, when I first went to Sarnath in '91, I uh, like you know started to develop some Tibetan friends, and uh, they. I was at the Tibetan Institute there, and. Um, they, uh, uh, like, we went for a walk, and I'm from New York, and I'm, like, walking, you know? And they're like, <laughs> what's, what's wrong? Like, where, where's the fire? Yeah, where's the fire? Yeah. Like, are you okay? Are you, you know? And they're, like, looking at the, what, is it, you got to get a train? I mean, they just thought it was hilarious that I walked like that. Hilarious. And then in Tibetan, so let's say, you know, ask me a yes or no question. Is it raining? Uh-uh. <laughs> what do you think that means? No, it sounded like no. Say, I'll do it again. Uh-uh. Like, uh-uh. No. It means yes. <laughs> <laughs> ask me another yes or no question. Are you having dinner tonight? Mm-hmm. That means no. Well, they would get in trouble if they talk to Venezuelans. Yeah. <laughs> so, 
It's like, you know, we people, you, you just you just get used to it. This is like a concept of habitus in, uh, um, oh, geez, you know, the French sociologist, uh, Bourdieu. Like it gets into your body. And it's not, and uh, on our structures of reality, even space-time, we're experiencing space-time, and this is a sociologist, Durkheim. You know, it's like, it just gets into, that's how we, we live in different realities. They overlap, of course. But they really are very different, the cultural realities. And like when I speak different languages, I speak a few different languages, I start, I've noticed that like, you know, si je parle français, je vais dire français comme ça, qu'est-ce que tu veux, quoi? c'est comme ça. Right. When I'm English, I there you go. Yes. Don't don't do, don't count like this though when you're in India. You have to take a pee. Be careful out there. Yeah. Be careful out there. So anyway, uh, so the point being that there's this sense like we just think, oh, that's reality. And it's, we're not contributing to it. It's not the way we're seeing it. It's not the way we've been conditioned. That's the real target here. Okay? That's the actual target. So uh, a simple way, I think I'm going to just kind of skip over all of this because I don't want to spend a lot of time. And let me just go to, let's, uh, I don't want to spend a lot more time kind of on all the details. Let's get to the good stuff. So, here's one good stuff. But before we talk about this, <clears throat> um, so this is the philosophy of Shunyata. And the idea here, here is we're looking for what a thing is really in and of itself. Okay? And when we're looking for what a thing is really in and of itself, part of what we're looking for is what it is objectively. So the Tibetans have a helpful term here, which is Rangingunedrupa, established from its own side. Like what it is, doesn't matter whether I'm looking at it or... Uh, you know, a, a cockroach is looking at it or it's floating around Pluto. This thing is what it is, regardless of context. Okay, so that's one way of thinking about it. Like, you're going to find what it is, regardless of anyone's perspective or anyone's context. It doesn't matter what words you use for it and so on. But if you use a word correctly, you can also think of this in terms of what does the word really refer to? Okay, so then you can say, what is a table really, right? The table is really a bunch of, you know, hydrocarbon atoms in this case, something like that. But just say a bunch of particles, right? What's an individual particle really? And let's say, say we get all the way down to a part, this particle, atoms. What do we say that is really? So every time, what's happening when we do this? Not just that, we're talking about something else. 
Instead of talking about the thing itself, we end up talking about something else. So what we're looking for when we're answering this way of saying, what is it really, ultimately, truly, we're looking for the thing. When we answer, we don't talk about anything but itself. In other words, it's the identity that the thing has independent of everything else. Yeah, so you could say the wetness of water, right? That you might say. But then you can just, so what is water really? It's wetness, right? What is that? Now we're talking about wetness, not water, right? It's that which causes, I don't know, certain kind of uh, events on a surface or something, right? So we just keep asking, what is it, what is it, what is it, in itself, And the idea is that when we keep doing that, we inevitably talk about something else. We can't find, so this is the idea of being unfindable, we can't find what the thing is in and of itself. It's identity independent of everything else, including me as an observer, or you as an observer. Okay? So what can, if we do that with particles, we might say, for example, what's a particle? It's the uh, result of a causal process. So now we're saying particles are actually... We just talked... Now we're back to... We're, we're talking about its causes. And we say, well, we'll say causality is real. Okay, so what you're saying is something is an effect, and, and it's, it's, its nature is to be the effect of a certain cause, Right? So it's defined, so we're going to say, fine, we're going to define it in terms of something else, but that's real. Okay, so we're saying, so there's effects at time two and uh, causes at time one. Does the effect exist at, at the time of the cause? No. No, doesn't exist at the time of the cause, correct? So, because if it did, you wouldn't need a cause, it already exists. Right, so it doesn't exist at the time of the cause. So the cause is defined as a cause. How is it defined as a cause? Because it has an effect. Does the effect exist? So you're defining the cause in terms of something that doesn't exist. So like, why not define it in terms of the horns of a rabbit, is the traditional example. Or a squircle, square circle. Okay, how about the effect? Well, okay, wait a second. The effect, now the effect exists, and it's the product of the cause. Does the cause exist when the effect exists? No. No. But we know from the past. We know lots of things wrongly from the past, too. So memory is fallible. So we're defining the effect as an effect in relation to something that doesn't exist. And if it's at same, if it's if it's at the okay, now let's do it at the same time. Here's another one, chapter six. That's chapter one, <laughs> chapter the analysis of causality. Here's another one, really nice one. Chapter six is about raga and rakta. Raga is uh, desire. It's like one of the fundamental kleshas. Those three poisons, right? And rakta is a past participle from the verb that. Raga is constructed from, which means desirous, something that has desire, in which desire is present. So there's desire and the desirous mind. Desire and the desirous, that which has desire. Does the desire exist before the desirous mind? No. That doesn't make sense. 
Does the mind first become desirous and then there's desire? No. Okay, so they exist at the same time. So is there so does so that what we're saying we're defining the mind as desirous because there is desire and we're right? So desire exists established to exist with its own identity and then on that basis we can say there's the desirous mind. But we define something desire as that which occurs in the desirous mind. So we can't define, we can't establish the existence of desire without their desirous mind. It's not like a free-floating thing. But then that means that we have to have the desirous mind established as desirous in order to define desire. But to say that the mind is desirous, it has a desire in it. But desire is not established. The def- definition of a desirous mind is a mind in which desire is occurring. That's the definition. Right. So it can't be that desire happens first and then a desirous mind happens second. Well, desire is an object. Well, why, is, why, yeah. why not? Because desire occurs in a mind. So once it's occurring, the mind is desirous. So what this none of this really none of this really exists independently. So what so what does that so when you ask ask the question, what is this thing really? The answer is what is its real ultimate nature? The answer is emptiness. Which doesn't mean that there's a thing there. It's not nothingness. Because nothingness so desire is not really desire in and of itself. A table is not really or ultimately a table in and of itself. Right? Emptiness is not really emptiness in and of itself. Right? It's only empty in relation to the non-empty, to the concept of the non-empty. The existent is not really existent in and of itself. You can only define no existence in relation to non-existence. So... The, so this is what Nagarjuna says, Yaha Pratitya Samutpadam Shunyatam Tam Prachakshmehe. Got that? Well, we say, we say that emptiness is interdependence. So the ultimate position is, if you say, what are things ultimately? The answer is, well, one answer is like this. That this is called the lion's roar of Queen Srimala. Anything you say is wrong. She like opens her. It's a great sutra. She like opens her mouth like that. <laughs> you know, completely stupefied. But there's no sound. Like she's teaching ultimate reality. And and, and so you can't. Anything you say is wrong because the, there's no there is no ultimate. So emptiness is like not an answer. It's more like saying. It's a way of flagging the fact that any answer you give doesn't make sense because it's an incoherent question. So conventionally, all there is is, is the conventional, the interdependent conventional. So, yeah? So we can't, so it's not nothingness because that is saying that it has no thing. 
nothingness. Things have to exist to not be there. Yes, you could say that. Yes. Or another way of saying is, if it were nothingness, I would be affirming something. Yeah, the existence of things that could be there. No, I would be affirming nothing. That makes me a nihilist. So Nagarjuna also says, therefore, if emptiness becomes your position, if you affirm that as your position, you're incurable. Because you have turned emptiness into nothingness. So your final position, your final view has to be to have no view. You can't, like, there's, what's your ultimate view? I don't have an ultimate view. I also don't even have the ultimate view of not having an ultimate view. From a Western perspective, would it sort of be what, what happened before the Big Bang? Right? Because, like, in the West, all matter and everything goes back in time until the Big Bang. And well, what was before it? What created uh, I'm not sure that's a great... I have to think about that analogy. I'm not sure that that works so well. Because, I mean, the whole question of beginnings, actually, it's somewhat like that. Yes, like, you can't talk about the beginning of everything, of anything. Because the very concept of a beginning is something that exists, like, independently of the before and the after. Right. So it's almost absurd to say before the Big Bang. So time... So how do we define the present moment? Yeah, it's, it's before the next moment and after the previous moment. Does the previous moment exist? No. What's that? It did exist. Yeah, but does it exist now? And does the future moment exist yet? So how are you going to like, so how do you define the present? Against things that don't exist. Well, what do you mean by real? Uh, that my experience is telling me that this is what's happening. So, my perception. we can then, we can shift. So let me give you one more example, which is an example, before we move on, is motion. So like, I'm walking, you know, and it's pretty clear, and Nagarjuna probably was thinking about walking meditation when he did this, certainly according to some of his commentators. So I'm doing walking meditation, right? So where's the walking happening? Yeah, yeah, like where is it happening? It's inferred. There's a walker, but the walker is here, and the walker is there, and we're inferring that there's something called movement. Okay, so how do we define something as a walker? Somebody as a walker or a runner? There's an action of walking occurring such that you define them as a walker? Yeah, where's the action happening? Right, so at any, any particular moment, there is no walking. And there's only the particular moment, so there can't be a walk. Exactly, but there actually isn't the particular moment, because the particular moment can only be defined as between those two things that don't exist. So there is not also the particular moment either, ultimately. So you said the ultimate position here is that reality is like a conundrum. Okay? It's, like a, it's like a question like, No, no, I wouldn't say that. Okay, so, so, but you did say that the ultimate position of the Garjana is you can't take a view. The ultimate position of the Garjana is 
if you have a view that you think is the ultimate truth, then you are in big trouble. Because that would be like having a view that rests entirely on the existence of squircles. Is there any perspective? Because there is no such thing as something that is the ultimate truth. So can you take any position against reality? Can you even take a position that whatever it is, is so then, okay, so now that we're saying, okay, the only kinds of reality there is is interdependent reality. Then what we can say is, well, within interdependent reality, conventional reality, how do we decide, is it like just all equally false? That doesn't work. You know, I can't like drink gasoline. So then within that, there are going to be, after Nagarjuna, different attempts by Majamaka philosophers to try to describe how do we give the best account of the conventional. We're going to talk a little bit about that tomorrow because that's going to bring in this whole Yogacara, so-called mind-only school. But a very simple way of saying it is that it has to do with coherent causality, which is always relative to our goals, to our conceptual apparatus, to the way we're perceiving the world, to our conditioning, to our karma. So we live in a kind of karmic, shared, conventional reality. And uh, you know we can't just make anything happen. And there are constraints on us within that conventional reality. But those constraints are all, in principle, permeable. It's all, you can infinitely change it. That doesn't mean that we're capable yet. Right? So that's the idea. But we can make little tiny shifts in it. Right? So that, for example, you know, our capacity to uh, maybe let go of some prejudices emerges from this idea that actually my model, which has been maybe working causally kind of okay, that has certain types of biases within it, is defective. And once, the only way I can do that is if I could admit that what seemed so real to me was not real. But all that being said sounds, to my mind at least, 100% consistent with what, how the, what the Buddha taught and how he taught it. Yeah, no, I don't, I, don't th- I wouldn't say that. Navarjana would certainly agree with you. Yeah. yeah, but what you could say is that there is a new kind of shift, right? And this shift is from a new kind of... Uh, uh, a new kind of like target. So the earlier target, and that is the predominant way of talking uh, of you know probably all pre Mahayana is its primary target is going to be personal identity, personal essences, right? The new t- because that you know in some ways that is the fundamental problem. But then when the way the idea of like what's the goal here, the goal is actually sort of, in a sense, becomes a more social goal, like a, 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 almost a political goal, like world transformation. Like we're going to, it's not, if we say in a very kind of simplistic way, that probably some members of the early Buddhist community did say, like the world, you know, Shariputra in the Sutra, like, oh, this world stinks, it's samsara, I'm getting the hell out of here. As opposed to, this world stinks, and I'm going to change it. 
So that attitude then bring, means that you need a different target, and the different target is going to be the world itself. So you move from seeing that persons lack essence, like persons aren't real things, to focusing on how you know, the stuff of the world also lacks essences. So it's a new emphasis. It's not... Yeah, uh, yeah, you could maybe call it... It's more like bringing the same style of analysis to a different domain, you could say, right? So the conclusion of this style of analysis, once again, is that, the, that samsara is not intrinsically samsara. Therefore, it's not, it can be changed, Right? Yeah. Nirvana is not intrinsically nirvana. Nirvana is defined in relation to samsara. Right? When we're working with those categories, that's where, that's where we find ourselves. So now we're not going like, to try to create a nirvana that's separate from samsara. We're going to be in between. Right? In this kind of liminal, liminal place where maximal transformation becomes possible. No, that, that's one of the... That's, uh, the discussion, this discussion, part of it is definitely like, what's, why are we bodhisattvas? And what's it mean to be a bodhisattva? The bodhisattva is trying to save, is trying to help all sentient beings to become free of suffering and to become maximally efficacious of that. What is that, like, what's the vision of how, how that's going to work? And one way you, that one vision is you're going to change the world of sentient beings, you're right, but you can't, you can't change it. You have to get them to change it because it's their world. They made it. So you have to like, you know, take all of the people in their conspiracy theory and get them to make a new one. Samsara, what drives samsara? What creates samsara? Ignorance. Ignorance. What creates now what's called the Buddha field? But the Bodhisattva is becoming a Buddha. Compassion. So, you, so the problem is not world-making. The problem is the engine driving the world-making. And the engine driving samsadic world-making is confusion, is ignorance. And the engine, when you, when you clear that away, and you see that none of the worlds are real... Ultimately, that doesn't mean they don't, they're non-existent. It means they're interdependent. Then you can like bring a new engine in. You can also just turn the engine off. Right? For yourself, anyway, at least they say. Actually, what they say is the Arhats, who, according to some, I think it's maybe the Lotus Sutra, they like, when they attain Hinayana Arhat, attains Nirvana, they get reborn in this Buddha heaven inside of a big lotus bud. And they have a very strong state of cessation that lasts for eons. And then at, toward the end of it, one of the 32 marks of a Buddha is they have a little curl here called the orna. And they shoot a light ray out of the orna and it strikes the lotus bud and it opens up. And the arhat's there like... And, and the Buddha says, you're not done yet. And then they become Buddhas like, you know, shortly thereafter. So, it, so they all become Buddhas on this account. All the Arhats do. It's just like they're delayed. 
So the new engine that's driving the world making. Yes. So one way to think about it is that one version of the early of early Buddhism was, and which is arguably, I'm sure there are people would argue that this is a confusion, not a good reading of what the Buddha was teaching. But one version of it is that some, you're stuck in samsara, and samsara just is what it is, which is samsara, and that's it. So, and that's clear that definitely some Buddhists thought that. It seems quite clear that that's the case. So, uh, you know, the only kind of goal there is escape. Maybe help other people to escape too, but we're just going to get out of here. But if the goal now is, to tra- is transformation, and it's not about you, it's about everybody else, then you have to say that the world isn't stuck. Otherwise, that doesn't, none of that works. And you need a new engine. So if the only engine that can make the world is ignorance, then that's all you got is ever get is samsara. But if compassion, if the stuff of the world is not intrinsically contaminated by ignorance, that means that the stuff of the world and the mind and everything else can be reconfigured with a different engine, which is compassion. Yes. But does that have any implications on how one achieves bodhicitta besides the fact that you mentioned you can't want to achieve bodhicitta? No, you do have to want it. Yeah, but, you, not, but not in a selfish way. Yeah, uh, bodhicitta, you, can, you mean bodhi, actually, Buddhahood, right? Well, uh, yes. Yeah, so bodhicitta is the aspiration to attain awakening for the sake of all beings. And for most bodhisattvas who are not, that don't have a high level of wisdom yet, probably. They're, you know, like, they still think people are real. They might intellectually know they're not real, but they feel it, that they're real. I'm just saying, is so, there any implication on the path to get to the, the Buddhahood uh, based on this new vision uh, of the universe and the, and the goal, so to speak? Yes, I mean, one implication is that you would not want to, in a sense, prematurely uh, get caught in emptiness. <coughs> it would be very important to cultivate emptiness. Meaning, like, uh, it would be, you could sort of experience, have an experience of emptiness, not just an intellectual one, and, uh, you know, see that the world is not ultimately real. And then, because you sort of don't have the compassionate motivation, you might then be susceptible to a nihilistic interpretation. It's like, oh, it doesn't, nothing matters. It's all just unreal. Whereas if you have, if your motivation is like, oh, you know, or that could also scare you. But also free you. I mean, yeah, so the ideal, they say the ideal of disciple for hearing this teaching of emptiness, the minute they hear that word, they're like, they get horripilation. They're like, their hair stands on end. They start to cry. <laughs> But that, uh, not that many people are like that. <laughs> so, but that, that's because, like, it's freeing. And especially because it frees you to be effective in, you know, helping other people. That's the idea. So, that's, so it means that if you don't have that motivation to help other people and just focus on, like, the philosophy of emptiness and maybe have a kind of experience, a preliminary experience, there could be a danger of becoming nihilistic. 
So that's one implication in terms of the path, that you really need to cultivate compassion right at the get-go. So emptiness is in means that in the Mahayana, what it means is that there is no such thing as something that exists ultimately. The only way things exist is conventionally. So that particular way of articulating the term emptiness in, is not present pre-Mahayana. Yeah. If you can find it, please show it to me. I mean, I was just talking to Mante Analio, and he said they don't even have the ultimate conventional distinction in early Buddhism, which he thinks is a problem. Like, it's not a good distinction. He thinks there's problems with that distinction, which is interesting. But, yeah, so you, if you don't have that, even have that distinction, you obviously can't talk about emptiness in that way. Well, maybe you can just say a little bit about it then, because I don't, I don't quite... Because it, it says here, there is nothing whatsoever that's non-empty, so how can one establish what is empty? Yeah. Is that my article? Yeah. Yeah. So, and what are you asking about then? Well, I'm just trying to... Oh, oh, oh I see. I, I see. Okay, yeah, okay. What that means is established. The word established means proved to be ultimately true or real. So, is it so you can't prove... So someone might think emptiness is ultimately true. I can establish emptiness is ultimately true. But to do that, you have to establish what is non-empty. If the non-empty is not established, how can you establish emptiness? Because emptiness is defined in terms of the non-empty. Okay, so this leads to that all views are ultimately Yeah. Okay, but, but prior to all this, prior to the Mahayana, could you establish anything as ultimately yeah, these guys thought they could, sure. All kinds of stuff. And it almost sounds like they did that specifically so they could set it in comparison to something well, like what? Nirvana. You know? Yes, yeah, I mean, that's, that's right. That's yeah, it kind of established... By doing that, you also then affirm the ultimate reality of Nirvana. That's right. Yeah. It's like there was maybe a kind of discomfort with, you know, like a kind of doubt. Like they needed a level of certainty that... Wasn't maybe really necessary, but because of debate, scholasticism, debating with other people. Remember, this is Sanskrit Abhidharma, so they have certainly people that are reading their texts, you know, who are not Buddhists. And I mean, there's not a lot of debate with other traditions in this style of philosophy. Madhyamaka and the other later after this is much more between traditions, but still. As soon as you establish that there is no ultimate reality of samsara. Yes, exactly. But is there anything else that was established as ultimately real besides samsara and nirvana? For example, the fourth foundation of mindfulness. Yeah, the five hindrances, the five aggregates. So you, what you could, were those thought to be ultimately real? What you could say is that by some, you know, obviously not all early Buddhists. It would, I mean, uh, I mean, who knows? But I don't think there's evidence that everyone was like the essentialist uh, Vibhashikas. I don't think you could say that. I think you could make a good argument against that. Uh, and that seems implausible to me. 
But were there some people who would say, because we have this kind of, we know what the fundamental constituents of the world are, then we, when we talk about the four foci of mindfulness, that stuff is completely, absolutely true because it's rooted in the knowledge of, of the basic building blocks of the universe. So all of those models are like completely true. Like the, like the fourth foundation. All of it, basically. All that, all that, all that stuff. Yes. And in this model, it's questioned or it's... It's not... It's in this model, to be... So there's... We're going to talk about what does it mean for something to be true conventionally because that's the only kind of truth you have left. And basically, what it, one way of thinking about what it means for something to be conventionally is it works. If it works, meaning you get a... You have a goal and you're going to have... Let's say you want... So let's say I'm cold. I see something on the far side of the field with my you know, vision. It looks like a fire. I go over there, and in one case, I put my hand out, and now I'm warm. All that's conventional. Even the feeling of warmth is, a, is not ultimately real. It's occurring in my perception, but it's not only there. But I'm, that my goal is accomplished. So that perception was true, within that conventional context. If I then uh, go over the field and instead of a fire, it's a certain kind of flower, I forget the name of it, that looks like fire from far away in India, and I you know, put my hand down, I was like, oh, then that perception was not reliable, was not true. But it's all just within conventional, coherent, and it's not just my mind, it's not just me, it's like all the sentient beings I'm connected with, Yeah. Yeah. Same thing. Oh yeah. Because those seem to work. One of the one of the chapters is one of Nagarjuna's chapters. The twenty fourth chapter is refuting the ultimate reality of the four noble truths. He goes through. I talked about my mother's cherished delusions thing, didn't I? Or did I? Yeah. Yeah. He like you know he opens the jar and he takes one out and says, "Nope, not real, not real, not real." Well, for example, suffering doesn't ultimately exist. Suffering is a relational phenomenon. In order for suffering to ultimately exist, it has to exist in and of itself, independent of context, like objectively. So, which is the feeling, when we have that reality feeling, the reality habit, it's that feeling like that thing is just real. It's not a dream. It's not anything, I'm not making it up, it's just real. Right? That's the feeling, and the philosophical equivalent of that is that thing exists there on its own side. I'm not, it's just real on its own side. Intrinsically, essentially real. Suffering doesn't exist that way. There's no ultimately real suffering. Which doesn't mean that suffering is, un, is like nothing. It just means it's relational. Thank goodness. Because if it weren't relational, we wouldn't be able to transform it. Also, the other kind of thing about it, though, is if it weren't relational, you couldn't feel it. Because if suffering were like a thing that exists in and of itself, non-relationally, then it would have to be unchanging. Because if it changed, then it became something other than what it is. 
if it, which, and in order to be, in order to be experienced, it has to come in relation. If we think of it like a thing, like a suffering atom, atom of suffering. And now I am going to have an experience of suffering. It has to come in relation to me, in order for it to be experienced. But it can't do that because then it would have to change. So you'd never suffer. But that would be nice. Ultimate. That's that would be another so consequence. There is suffering of, is like a postulate. It's really a. a, a there is suffering. Yes. There is suffering within our world, within our life world. Conventionally. Conventionally. There is suffering. So, from, from that perspective, like reality is unknowable. So no, I, that's not true. Well, wait, emptiness. I mean, from that perspective, yeah, you, you can ultimate reality is knowable. You know emptiness. I know. What does that mean? We're going to do that tomorrow because that's a real tricky thing. How do you know something? You just said you don't know I didn't say that. I just said it can't be. I didn't say you can't know it. John, is all this to lead us to and point us toward freedom? Yeah, of course. Well, so the idea, yes. Sorry, keep going. Yes, freedom from our suffering, delusional beliefs, but more than that. World a capacity to remake your world, not just escape from it. Well, we thought. Well, no, it's like. Let's just say. Um, and you ever done that like dot thing where you have to so-called think outside the box in order yeah, to connect yeah. all the dots? Yeah. It's like we think the building blocks are just in that. Th- we, can't, we can't think outside the box. And emptiness like saying, that's not the way it looks. Your model is not the reality. Maybe you should try adjusting your model. You might see something different, a different way out, so to speak, or a different... Way to solve the problem. It's a simplistic, maybe a kind of simple way of, but maybe not. I mean, like, does that make sense? I mean, in other words, it's saying that the model with all those building blocks is just a model. And it's a model that, that is telling you, actually, that you're stuck. And this is saying you're not stuck, because that model is only one version. You can come up with other ways of understanding what's happening. That will enable you to transform the world. I feel like it's like in order to understand the world, we have to understand what's not. Like, like it, the framework that I'm putting in my head is almost like a web where everything is moving and it only exists in the point where two things interact or multiple states interact. And that means that, like, rather than trying to negotiate a fixed form by moving yourself around it, you understand that nothing is fixed and you're both sort of floating around it. I'm not sure that made a lot of sense, but it makes sense. Man, I'm sure it does. Someday I will get it. Yes, it did kind of make sense, but that basic idea, like your your, like that sort of positionality or uh, like no fixed positionality. Yes. Right? Yeah. And the,
Yes. That's and not, that's, yeah. Yeah. Constantly, yeah, yes, and we we turn it, we solidify it. I want to show you one thing before we, because we're really late. Journey, and we've seen that reality is a little different than we thought it was, and or maybe our goals have adjusted a little bit. It still lands us back in conventional reality. Correct. And all the tools, the teachings of the Buddha, that are are, are practically futile in in that reality that can lead us down the path function? Uh, I think it's an interesting question to ask whether they all function. There may be some of those tools, because remember, there's 84,000 different types of teachings for 84,000 different types of beings. And some of those beings just want to escape. And some of those tools are for people to escape, because that's what they need to do right now. Does and so still this Yeah, sure. Yeah. It is. It's just not you know, on this view like I told you that this you know, the the story, it's not even necessarily selfish. On this view, it's not permanent. Nirvana is understood generally by the tradition to be that kind of nirvana is understood to be permanent, and the idea here is that eventually those people as well will eventually become Buddhas too. But, uh, you know, you can escape from samsara, yeah, for sure. You don't have to be caught in samsara anymore. And, that, and, you, and, you, and you can do that without the aspiration to become a Buddha. Some people will say that's not true, but m- most traditions will say that's true. Yes? And then we should quickly do this, because... Yes. The idea that uh, that that's one of our important roles. Yes, that's right. And also, there are a number. You know, not all uh, Buddhist activists uh, will take this stance, but a number of them, like His Holiness Dalai Lama, who's a kind of activist for Tibet, actually, will take the stance that. Um, it's activism is not a matter of like defeating the bad people because the bad people are also part of the world you're making a world with the bad people so you're never going to and, and and when you're in that stance even if you if all the bad people have been eliminated more bad people will come because the kind of world you're making is one that needs bad people to be an activist. So this one is saying the, the kind of activism is you have to get the bad people to be on your team. And you have to be on their team. You have to, you have to find a way of coming together. So that's like a distinctive implication of this kind of view, which is that like Sometimes activism can be very absolutistic and, you know, work with activists and we all have our issues, but sometimes there can be a thing like, this is the right way, 
justice, this is the thing. And, you know, we're just going to keep hammering until they lose. And that's not going to work because that whole dynamic requires the them. So it'll just be more of them. And it does, yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's that? That this social, this transformation of our world cannot happen without compassion. Yes, right. This is the reason to say Meta for Trump, which I have a real problem with. Yeah, it's not easy. I'm not easy, but. No. But yes, exactly. I mean, his holiness actually said in private, you know, like, I pray for the guy, basically. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I also had a comedian friend, sadly, who passed away, Mike DiStefano, who was a Buddhist practitioner and got quite high up in the comedy world. And he used to say, how does a Christian say, F you? I'll pray for you. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And me, yeah. you know what it means. That's not a bit like that's a bad thing. Yeah. Like it, it could either be like if you're south of the Mason-Dixon line and they say bless your heart. Yeah, I you're in trouble. I, I grew up in the south. And I lived in Atlanta for 10 years. So let's just quickly do this. You know, we're over time. But let's quickly do this because this is important. Something we want to come back to tomorrow, which is... Uh, how do we get... So this is really a description of uh, the end of samsara. Not the creation of the Buddha field, right? But this is what emptiness does. So the guardian is even saying, like, emptiness is necessary even to really, really put an end to samsara, to become free. But of course, for him, freedom means it's not just an end, it's like a new beginning. But so, when I and my... There we go, the same thing. All right. So I, this, I, there's an I, and there's my aggregates. and this, this, So the usual term emptiness in pre-Mahayana usually refers to there's no I, that's selflessness. There's no my, that's emptiness. There's nothing, in other words, the aggregates are empty of belonging to a self. Okay, so that's two different ways of talking about selflessness. No Atma and no Atmiya. Atma is the self. Atma is that which belongs to the self. The mind or the my. Okay? So that which drives samsara, when they cease, then appropriation upadana, so this is a clear reference to the twelve links, ceases. And through the cessation of appropriation, birth ceases. Okay? Through the cessation of karma and afflictive mental states comes liberation. So what's the root way of stopping this? Karma and klesha. So that's our goal. We stop karma and klesha. It's all just classical. It's like totally early, you know. This is nothing weird. This is Nagarjuna. Now, karma and afflictive mental states come from concepts or, vi- or conceptualization. Vikalpa. It's going to be a key idea. Right? Where, how do we even get... So these I and my are really being caused by karma and afflictive mental states... Where do they come from? Conceptualization. 
And concepts come from fabrication. So this is going to be a really key term. What does this mean? Prapancha. And fabrication, however, ceases in emptiness. So when you are experiencing emptiness, and it's an experience, you're experiencing emptiness. What does it mean? to You're knowing emptiness. You're experientially knowing emptiness. What does that mean? We're going to talk about that tomorrow. Yeah. That's we're going to find out tomorrow. But what we can what we can know is that prapancha. You can even just use that Sanskrit word prapancha or fabrication is something that is necessary to use concepts. What do you have to have in place in order to conceptualize? Especially in the context where categories don't exist out in the world, you have to construct them yourself. The mind is constructing concepts. You're not just discovering tables, you're constructing the category of tables, the concept of a table. So in that con- and why are you doing that? To get the good stuff and to avoid the bad stuff. Conceptualization is rooted in action in the world. So what's necessary? Prapancha is somehow necessary for concepts. It's deeper than concepts. So it's, it's not just at the level of thinking things and beliefs. It's something deeper than that, that even enables that kind of thinking. So what is that? I'm, I'm, uh, whatever you want. You can you can think about it. You can do some prapancha, you know. So okay, so that's where we're gonna that's gonna launch us tomorrow into a discussion of uh, the yogacara and and now and then we're gonna like get into actual non-duality. Woohoo! Which we've been doing a little bit in the in the practice side. Okay, all right. So it is. Uh, so I, I want to say, uh, Joseph uh, Goldstein and Sharon Salzberg asked me to come over for dinner tonight. So I'm going to be there. I was thinking I should uh, probably delay our start till 7:30, unless you all want to have independent practice. But I. I will certainly say hi. Okay. Uh, it would be nice, but I don't think it's too likely. Uh, so, I mean, I'm happy to come back by 7:30. But, but. Yeah. Right. <laughs> uh, well, let's see how it goes. So, one, one, if you're all comfortable with, uh, does someone want to be a bell ringer? You could start even at 7. Or do you want to have independent practice in the Dharma Hall without a bell ringer? Yes. Yeah. 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 Okay, so we have independent practice, 7 to 9, and hopefully I'll show up some at some point. Right? Does that sound good? Yeah. All right. Good and, all right, thank you. Right. I appreciate that. And if I don't... All right, thank you. I might, I might take advantage of that. We Give us all a little space. We'll see. That sounded a little like. <laughs> I told you I grew up in the south. So. 
Okay. Bless your heart. No, no, no. Cool. I had it 10 minutes and I said. Okay. Uh, so that's it for now. Uh, and uh, I will see. So I'll see you. Uh, it maybe can we in the Dharma Hall? Maybe we could. Hmm. No, no, let's do, let's go sit for a few minutes anyway. It's, uh, it's quite late, it's 4.25. Well, I can, we can go sit for 20. How about if we meet in the Dharma Hall in about 10 minutes? Is that okay? Yeah. We can go practice for about 25 minutes or so.